thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey everyone, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello, and this week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're trying something different. We're airing an authentic media snapshot, as we call it. It's a portion of one of the shows that are military aviation based from our friends over at Authentic Media. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here we go. This is Authentic. Hey, welcome back to the channel, everybody. Scott Roger Chafian here with Sunshine Sinclair. Hi, Sunshine. Hey, Roger. How are you these days? I'm great. How are you doing? No complaints, man. San Diego is uh, nice and sunny as always. And Norfolk is sunny until it's cold, until it's rainy, until it's sunny. So just, you know, <laughs> wash, yeah, rinse, but, repeat. <laughs> yeah, but, but the nice thing is you have variety. So believe it or not, as, as much as I like San Diego, nice actually gets boring a little bit. Yeah? Yeah, yeah it really does. So I, no, I, I, I get enjoy, that. Yeah, I enjoy when it rains here, believe it or not. No, I get that. Having grown up in San Francisco, uh, you know, our nice, it, our steady wasn't even quite as nice as San Diego. So I get it, though. Season's <laughs> going to be cool. But, Indeed. Yeah. So we're here. You know, that's sort of an impromptu and unplanned lead in, I guess, on our part, because we're here today to talk about the Super Hornet or Rhino Block 3. And this is a design that's gone through several seasons of change in its design and its operation in, in the U.S. Navy. So you know, let's start at the beginning and hop in the Wayback Machine because the Block 3 Super Hornet, of course, follows on the Super Hornet itself, which is sort of known as the Block 2 of the Legacy Hornet, sometimes known as Block 1. So, Sunshine, why don't you just take us back there and get remind the listeners of what the Legacy Hornet was, what it was designed to do, what it did do, what it couldn't do, and then we'll talk about how we changed that for the Super Hornet. Yeah, thanks, Roger. So basically, think back to the Legacy Hornet, and I'll keep this one brief so we can really sure. dive into the yeah. details on the Super Hornet. But it was uh, the F-16 Loser. It was the lightweight fighter right. program Loser, right? So the uh, its origin is, or we could say it's a derivative of the YF-17, which they called the Cobra, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was a competition. The Air Force had a lightweight fighter competition, and they, they basically, you know, you do competitive sourcing where you send out a proposal and companies come back with their competitive prototypes, and then you evaluate, and somebody wins. Well, the winner was the YF-16. The loser was the YF-17. And then the Navy said, you know, because that was an Air Force competition, right? Mm -hmm. They said, well, why don't we take the Cobra? Let's see if we can kind of tweak it, make it carrier suited, if you will, and then use it. And we'll use it for both fighter missions as well as attack missions. So mm -hmm. hence the F and the A for fighter and attack came out. And I believe it was the early 80s was the first initial operational capability or IOC of the F-18. And that was actually with the Marine Corps first, and then the Navy got it shortly thereafter. Absolutely. The first uh, blooded in combat in El Dorado Canyon, which uh, I think in out years you'll hear more from us about. But uh, yeah, 84. 
if memory serves. Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. So, and now what happens is we have lots. So think of it like a, a generation. So we have these different, let's, let's take iPhones, for example, right? You have iPhone 7, 8, 9, or you can think of cellular networks. We have 3G, where G is generation, 4G, mm-hmm. 5G, right, Roger? Yeah. So, so what we have, uh, the analogous term, if you will, on the aircraft side is going to be blocks, which are big generational changes, or mm-hmm. smaller increments, we'll call them lots, or L-O-T, lots, right? Right. So the legacy F-18 started with, as you could imagine, lot one, it went up to lot 20. Okay. okay. And that would be the F-18A, the B, the C, right? And then uh, the D also, where the B and D are the family models, right? right. Where you got a backseater. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Sports <laughs> models and the family models, right? Exactly. Yeah. So now come lot 21, that's where they shifted over. So they, they changed the tooling in the factory at Boeing there, which was previously McDonnell Douglas, and they came out with the Super Hornet. So the first instant of a block one, we'll call it Super Hornet was lot 20, a lot 21, excuse me, lot 21. Okay. So and that, yeah, no. So I was just going to say, so through those lots, we saw incremental improvement, right? That that's what that meant is, is time went by, they saw things they needed to do. Maybe, maybe analogy there would be, you know, you take your Toyota Camry, right? Mm-hmm. Like sort of average car, they redesign every four or five years, but we know that the 21 is going to be subtly different from the 22, from the 23, so on and so forth, but it's not a major redesign. Exactly right. There are little incremental, just like you said, changes. So the yeah. uh, block, the block twenty one Super Hornet IOC, right? Initial operational capability or introduction of the fleet back in September of two thousand one, mm-hmm. and then the block one spanned lots twenty one through twenty five, and they stopped producing them in two thousand five. Okay. And so the uh, with September, I'm sorry, with the IOC back in September of one, they were first delivered to VFA one fifteen. And VFA-115 took them into combat. so that's, Right away, yeah. Yeah, right away. So basically IOC'd and then off they went to the desert to do some good work. Yeah. Now, the uh, Lot 21 was unique in that it was, and, and remember, there's some engineering models. There's, there's kind of prototypes. We call them, right, or LRIP birds. So that would mm-hmm. be low rate production, LRP, mm-hmm. LRIP birds. And uh, some of those LRIP birds then were actually used in the fleet initially, and they they were slightly different. They didn't have a battery gauge. So Lot 21 didn't have a battery gauge, and then 25, 22 through 25 did. So that was one of the bigger differences. So, okay. that's, so as a pilot, what's that mean for you? Because I, you know, driving my car, okay, uh, most cars don't even have a battery gauge now. I like my older vehicles where I could see with the charges. Is that the same sort of thing, or is that something different? No, it's very similar. It's uh, what I'll usually do is in my, when I was flying lot twos and above, excuse me, block twos and above, you turn on the battery switch and you just check to make sure there's enough juice basically to get the auxiliary power unit or the little jet Mm -hmm. engine, get that fired up so that it starts up the big jet engines. Nice. Okay. So yeah, not really uh, very consequential, but it it can be uh, also useful for uh, electrical troubleshooting, if you will. Sure. Not consequential right until it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, okay. So that was block one would be lot 21 through 25s. And then mm-hmm. right about 2005, they introduced block two. Mm-hmm. And so block two is going to span lots 26 through 42. And there are a couple major kind of generational upgrades. So we'll, we'll start with the radar. So they went mm-hmm. from the uh, APG 65 and then they went to the APG-73 and then eventually the APG-79. 
And that's been kind of the uh, workhorse sense, right? And, and APG-79 right. is the AESA radar. Are you familiar with that? I am. Uh, let's describe it for the listener, though. It's uh, active electronically scanned array. Yeah, which is huge. And uh, do you happen to know some of the benefits of a, of AESA over a mechanically scanned I, I do as an Aegis guy, and uh, we could sort of we could sort of tag team here. But you know, the yeah. first one, of course, is fewer moving mechanical parts mean fewer breakdowns, but also uh, being able to electronically scan your array removes the limitation to scan in a in a you know physical pattern, if you will. So it, I know it's a little different in in a fighter jet, because you're looking at a cone ahead, but what we always looked at on the ship was, on an Aegis ship, you had the SPS-49, which would rotate around the ship. And if it's rotating at you know 12 RPM, you don't get to look at a given point in space other than every six seconds. And six seconds is a long time when you're talking about supersonic missiles. Whereas the, uh, well, back in, in my block of Aegis, Aegis, it was passive. It wasn't AESA, it was PESA. But that allows you to have the radar controlled and look at a given point in space anytime you want. Yeah, exactly right. So with a mechanically scanned array, it's quite literally, there was a radar dish, right? Kind of Mm -hmm. a flat plate behind the nose of the F-18 there. And you're right, we had dwell times and we had revisit rates. Right. Just Just like you so well explained of, hey, you can't look at a target except you will be limited by the physical manipulation of, of the dish, if you will. So, right. but, when, but when you have AESA, you can have part of the radar steer the lobe to stare at something, and you can have another part of the lobes can actually continue to scan. Right. So you can have uh, basically fire control quality cues, if you will, so you mm-hmm. can stare at something, and you can still scan around and see what else is out there. So we call it track while scan or TWIS, T-W-S, right. yeah. It, so and I think what's sorry to interrupt you. I think what's important there, if for people who aren't really familiar with radar processing, is you know, unlike what you see in the movies, one radar return does not make a contact for the processor. Right? It needs to see dis. Uh, it needs to see movement over time, displacement over time, uh, and if you're only looking at something once every six seconds, you're talking about twelve or eighteen seconds for a mechanically scanned. 360 degree, it's going to be less in, in a, uh, you know, nutating ro- radar in a fighter jet, but even three or four seconds to maintain a track. Whereas we're talking sub one second ability to get multiple beams on target. Absolutely. And a lot of these, and, and you're, you're absolutely right in that the, the hardware is one thing, but it's the software that is mm-hmm. really clutch, right? For these radars. Right. So we can take uh, they can, process Doppler returns and they can tell if the target is moving toward or away from the radar, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can also, with track cro- track crossing rates, excuse me, you can actually divide the exact vector. So that would be the course and speed of the contact. So, right. and it just, ASA was, it was such a game changer. I went from, so I cruised in lot 26 and it was actually before they had installed the ESA, but they had the wires in there. So kind of, we call it the plumbing. Right. And it had the it had the brains, but it didn't have the radar yet. So I flew around with the APG seventy three mechanically scanned, mm-hmm. and when when I went in the country, and granted this was late into the war, so air superiority had already been established in both theaters, both Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But but we would traditionally go in there as a mixed section, so it would be two F eighteens, 
one from, in, our, in my case, it was 154, the Black Knights, but they had Aisa, and then I would go in as a single seat, and so that would be the mixed section going in. So you have one okay. Aisa radar, and then me and the mech scanned radar. So Okay. Yeah. And so that's, so we're looking, Block 2, Super Hornet, is bringing the upgraded radar and the upgraded processor. Yeah, exactly right. So right. you got you got the brains to go with the radar, we'll call it. And then uh, joint helmet mounted queuing system. This was another real game changer for me. So Jimix, mm -hmm. if you will. So basically a lot of the HUD information, both targeting as well as avionics. So air data stuff like altitude, airspeed, velocity vector, that can all be, or not velocity vector, excuse me, but that can all be posted over your eye on the visor. Right. So so what what we can do now is we can dogfight and I can look around behind me and I can see the HUD information, but it's on my visor. It's not in the HUD. So it doesn't restrict my ability to see information and scan outside, if that right. makes sense. The, the same way HUDs allowed a pilot to, to not have to go heads down in the cockpit, if you will, to get some critical information. Now you don't even have to go back to centerline. You can keep your eye on the threat. And, you know, I'm so I'm guessing here, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, energy state and things like that without just seat of your pants, right? You know how fast you're going, you know, you have these references, you've got everything right there. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, and it was so clutch for BFM or dogfighting, as you could imagine, because you can sense the energy state of the jet by, like you said, seat your pants, control responsiveness, if you will. So mm -hmm. if you're going real quickly, it's kind of snappy, you know, crisp controls, slower, yep. you're going to be a little more mushy, but also when I did close air support in country, so that would be, you know, guys on the ground, the joint right. terminal attack controllers, the JTAC talking to me, they could give me a lat long. I plug it in and then I look around and that there was a target designation box that would pop up around the target with respect to my eye. So when I looked around, mm -hmm. I would see a box in my visor and it would actually cover the target. So it just made the battle space, we'll call it geometry, so easy to recognize because I'm like, oh, the target's right over there. So then I cue my sensors there and do whatever needs right. to be done. And if you look back at the history of forward air control and close air support, you know how much time, I'd say even in, in Desert Storm, uh, were, was spent just figuring out where the good guys were and where the bad guys were. And, you know, uh, this, is, this has got to be a game changer. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that whole figuring out where the good and the bad guys are, we, we wrap that into a concept called fog of war, right? Yep. So if you go back to the Clausewitz fans, if anybody reads that old uh, military literature, <laughs> that yep. that term that term is still <laughs> alive and well, despite all the technology we have out there. That's right. You know, no plan survives first contact, right? And mm -hmm. when the uh, the munitions start flying, things go out the window, and it's a uh, it's a very fluid, we'll call it, environment. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So okay, so that that's the helmet. We talked about the radar, the brains to the radar, the helmet, larger displays, which is nice. So now. I went from smaller kind of a microfiche moving map, if you will, to a mm -hmm. no kidding color color display. So kind of like what yeah. we have in our cars these days, not size wise, it was bigger, but the um, the clarity, if you will, and the colors right. and all that. So so that was a huge thing. We also had AT FLIR, which would be our advanced targeting pod, right? So that would be our mm -hmm. advanced tactical forward looking infrared. So now we have a fantastic electro optical. So in the visible spectrum, as well as IR in the infrared spectrum targeting mm -hmm. pod which was huge and that's so one these, of the ones carried down on the cheek right under the under the inlet yeah exactly right on the on the okay. left cheek you got it yep okay 
is kind of uh that was the the only place for it traditionally so okay so you get so those are the major upgrades and then uh the block twos we had 322 echoes and 286 foxes built mm -hmm. and those lasted all the way up to block 42 and then that's where we finally sorry for the delay we finally get into the block three yeah well and i let's hit one let's hit one or two other things really quickly sure. um fuel right so uh you know, again, as a surface Aegis guy whose life was fleet air defense, right? When you're on an Aegis cruiser or destroyer, um, fuel in the original Hornet was was a concern, right? Like it, it was not it was known as a short legged aircraft. Now, I'm going to put an asterisk up there because I've talked to some very um, not just senior, but very experienced guys who, uh, you know, I'm not going to name drop here because they they haven't said go ahead and say it but uh going back to el dorado canyon when the legacy hornet was used as a strike fighter get up go to altitude do its job come home it did that wonderfully talking to those guys and they were coming back to the boat after the strikes on libya in a better fuel state than a6 intruders were but when it came yeah i know it's a little surprising right wow. I, I was yeah, shocked to hear that yeah um but when it came to fleet air defense, I ru I remember running, you know, training intercepts in the nineties, where if you put a Tomcat section on, on a cap station, it was uh -huh. run an intercept. Okay. Bring them back, run an intercept, bring them back to the cap station. Third one, maybe we're talking about bringing up a tanker or something. And with the legacy Hornets, it was run an intercept. Where's your tanker? Run intercept. Where's your tanker? It was an issue. And, <laughs> You know, a big a big improvement of the the Super Hornet, right in the in the block in the EF was the additional fuel, right? Without a doubt, yeah. So I'll tell you what: in all my experiences uh, in combat, there were surface to air threats, you know, getting shot at, so AAA or surface to air missiles. There was night rendezvous, night landing on the carrier, weather out there. If I were to summarize, though, the greatest amount of risk that I ever felt or the nervousness I felt, it was actually due to fuel states and specific to the Charlie when I flew that as opposed, yeah. as opposed to the Echo. Yeah. We have, uh, are you familiar with the term bring back? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, so picture this, you got, let's just do a, a comparison and I'm sorry, I don't have models or pictures here, but yeah. so you have an F-18C, an F-18E and the F-18E has more gas internally. And then you start putting 3,000 extra pounds of gas on each with a, on each fuel tank, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so both of them, though, you send them out and they've got a certain amount of bombs, certain amount of gas. And then the bring back is the amount that the, that the aircraft is actually allowed to land on the carrier with. Right. So you can imagine- For, for that, safety restrictions, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. For safety restrictions. And you don't want to permanently damage the plane. Mm -hmm. So the bring back in the Super Hornet was much more than the Charlie- and when you think about coming back, you're going to bring back a combination of probably ordnance and fuel. So right. if if I go out with a whole bunch of bombs and I don't use any of them, well, I'm not going to jettison behind the carrier. We usually want to hold on to them. So what happens right. is I'm, I'm sacrificing fuel to come aboard. So there are times when I would be trick or treat on the ball, meaning I'm coming down to land. And if I miss the wires or bolter or get waved off, I have to go, I have to go hit the tanker. So it's kind of my right. last pass before going to hit the tanker. And that happened at night. I would say often that I'd be trick-or-treat on the ball in the, in the Charlie, but it hardly ever happened in the Rhino because I would check in 
even if I didn't expend any ordinance on my flight out there, I would still have, I'm going to say just roughly 9,000 pounds of gas, but so much gas that I would have maybe two or three looks behind the boat Mm -hmm. before I had to go to the tanker. So the stress factor for even just getting back to the ship was so much less thanks to the engineers who built the Rhino. Yeah, absolutely. So so that, and then I'll just mention this number because it'll come up when we talk about the Block 3, is the the uh, original Super Hornet, if you will, the Block 1, Block 2, were designed for 6,000 total flight hours. And we yes. know that, yeah, we know that that was an issue because I think even with the Legacy Hornets, there was a time when the, you know, Thank goodness it's, it's the Department of the Navy, right? So we have yep. the Navy and the Marine Corps in there. And for my Marine friends, yes, the Marine Corps, the men's department. But uh, they, <laughs> you know, they were swapping. Yeah, they were swapping uh, F-18s, legacy Hornets between Navy and Marine Corps squadrons at one point because the strain of the carrier landings on the Navy birds was eating up those those airframe hours. So they brought in the Marine ones because not every Marine squadron deploys on a carrier and you know, they have the nice long runway where you can flare and not essentially crash in a controlled manner. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Exactly right. You can land Air Force style, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So we'll, uh, we'll co- but we'll come back to that in a little bit. So that was great. And it's probably worth mentioning, it was really a quantum change from the Legacy Hornet to the Super Hornet. You know, as I mentioned from the, from the fleet air defense perspective, and that Legacy Hornet was designed to replace really the A4, sort of when they were talking about doing this, was out of service by the time they done it. Definitely the A7, some roles of the F4. But, you know, the big dog F14 was, was you know, big kid on the playground when this thing came in. And it was it was seen as as an addition, right? The fighter and attack aircraft, not not the primary fighter for the Navy. And then that changed, right? Because we see the F-14 with the end of the Cold War gets an accelerated sunset. And now the Super Hornet, as it came to be designed, really stepped into that role. And against a lot of pushback that I could even feel outside of the aviation community, stood up and said, yeah, I'm the Navy's fighter now. Like, I, I am not second fiddle to anybody. And that's what you got with the Super Hornet, right? Absolutely. So the the way I understand the, the Hornet, it was, uh, yeah, it replaced the fighters you had mentioned, and it complemented the F-14, as you also mm-hmm. had alluded to earlier. And then, unfortunately, things, as you know, as you always say, moving things break, right? So these <laughs> right. F-14s, F-14s with their 
moving wings and their big engines and whatnot, they eventually get so expensive that the return on the investment so it is is diminishing. So in other words, right. you just keep throwing more and more money at these things and they keep being able to do less and less, unfortunately. So right. yeah, they did sunset the F-14, I believe in the early 2000s. Yep. I think um, Craig Snyder, who, who does the Airboss series, was on the last cruise in 2006, if memory serves. Crunch, my apologies if I got that wrong. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And then right about that time, we had that, you know, we, we talked earlier, Block 1 Super Hornet came out in 2001, right? The IOC, mm -hmm. if you will. So, yeah, you can see how there was the, the sundown or the waning of the F-14 activity yep. and then the, the immediate ramping up of the Super Hornet. So, yeah. Right. It, kind of took the guard, if you will, yeah. of the F-14. And, you know, it's it's a good plane. It's a good airframe. But like with everything, time moves on, technology moves on. And there was recognized a need for what is now the Block 3. So you've talked about the great things that the Block 2 Super Hornet brought to the game. Let's now go ahead and describe what the Block 3 is. Because the Block 3... Um, Delivered to the Navy in late 2021, correct? The first uh, first examples? Correct. Okay. Yeah, you got it. And then the, uh, so the Block 3, though, I'm going to have at least, uh, I have almost 10 highlights. So uh, folks at home, go ahead and settle back into that chair, you know, right. pull up, a, get, a, <laughs> get a beverage. Get a drink, get yeah. a beverage, exactly <laughs> right. And we'll, we'll settle in. So uh, once again, I almost apologize here. I'm going to give you some test pilot answers, if you will, right? So All ask, good. What yeah. ask what time it is, and I tell you how to build a watch. But <laughs> um, circling back, though, you brought up a great point of service life. So just imagine anything. Let's say you buy a car, right? And you go buy a $100,000 car, but it only lasts two years. Mm -hmm. So where's the return on the investment, right? So well, now picture purchasing a $65 million plus aircraft, mm -hmm. and it only lasts... I don't know, 10 years or something like that, right? So they, they definitely wanted to enhance or extend the service life. And you had mentioned earlier, they went from 6,000, which would be the block, or excuse me, the lot uh, one all the way through 42, right? And they extended it from 6,000 flight hours up to 10,000 flight hours, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And just to give you an idea though, oh yeah, significant, exactly right. But uh, I also, just to put it into perspective, and 10,000 is a lot, but this is a carrier-based aircraft. So controlled crashes, if you will, and and very violent jettisons airborne off the front. So to give you an idea, Boeing's other product, the F-15EX, that actually has been reported to have a service life of 20,000 hours. Right. So so imagine the F-15EX, you know, which flared land squat to pee, got it. It's very benign <laughs> with you know, <laughs> It, it's got its, you know, crosswind landings, yeah. but other than that, it's pretty, pretty benign environment and the pilots fly it very sparingly, which is great mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the takeoff and landing environment. But the, uh, we were just excited to get 10,000. We're excited in the Navy to get half the service life of the right. F-15. It, and it's, you know, it's not that they couldn't build, build it to get 20,000 hours. It's just that they would have to make the components so heavy that the performance giveaway would be too enormous, right? Like yes. maybe maybe it would be okay maybe to do this in an attack aircraft, though even though it's maybe pressing, right? But, you know, everything's a trade-off. So the flip side of this is um, they can't land on a carrier and that's somewhere where that service life goes. Absolutely. And I think you'll see, just as you mentioned earlier, it's a trade-off. So my little mantra, whatever, is that aviation 
engineering or design is really just a series of compromises, right? Absolutely. So, so we're going to go ahead and take a little away from the life lifetime or lifespan, we'll call it, and then put it into the performance bucket. So mm-hmm. there's sure. you got to rob, rob Peter to pay Paul. Yeah. Right. So. Okay. So that would be the first uh, improvement, if you will, would be the inc- increased service life. So the return on the investment for the American citizen, I say, is is pretty darn nice. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, you earlier, Roger, you had talked about fuel and we talked about the legacy and we talked about the Super Hornet and the, the differences and obviously the increased capability. Are you familiar with conformal fuel tanks? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So uh, to my knowledge, the conformal fuel tanks that was uh, projected and it was anticipated for the Navy purchase, but in the end, they didn't purchase it, right? Right. But um, we're looking at an extra 3,500 pounds of gas. Even so, that, you know, so with the CFTs or if they, uh, or even without them? Oh, my apologies. Somewhat, yeah. No, if, uh, so if you were to strap on the two CFTs or conformal fuel tanks okay. over the, the dorsal back area, then right. you would have had the, the air crew would have had an additional thirty five hundred pounds of gas. Right. Which which is and what did you say the base was internal to begin with? Um, I have to look at. I think it's in the sixteen yeah. sixteen seven yeah. or something like so, that. So so that's not a small amount. Yeah, that's a significant increase. And it, for any of you who aren't familiar with uh, conformal fuel tanks or CFTs, they're sort of the cornerstone of what. Uh, one of the capabilities that took the F-15 into the uh, F-15E Strike Eagle. They're, I believe, on the F-15EX. They're available on the F-16. I think Israel might have been the the pioneers in using those. And basically, they they sort of, they don't look like a drop tank, right? They, they're an addition to the airframe that almost looks blended into the airframe and allows you to carry that fuel without the additional drag of a drop tank. Correct. Absolutely. So the nice thing is it frees up, they would free up mm-hmm. hard, hard points for ordnance, right? So right. they're not hanging that also. under the wing. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then they're almost like, uh, bear with me here, tumors or blisters yeah. on the back of the mm-hmm. F-18. So if you guys can picture the canopy and how the canopy kind of gracefully blends into the, the, the back, the dorsal, we call it the dorsal area of the F-18, where you see an antenna or two, there's this little ridge back there. And then there are uh, surrounding the ridge are two flat areas that are basically the top of the intakes. So if you mm-hmm. move well back from the intakes in the flat area, basically where the, the base of the Lex is, that's where these conformal tanks or these kind of blisters, if you will, would be attached. Mm-hmm. It, if you go to your favorite search engine and you know type in F-18 Block 3 uh, CFT, you can get pictures. But you know they, they had concept drawings up there and even uh, I think they actually did some some actual CFTs that Navy just hasn't purchased them today. Yeah, correct. They actually did testing. Boeing did. So it was uh, at right. Boeing's expense, right? They they had these and right. they're kind of, they're fared, if you will. So what I mean by that is mm-hmm. it's not just a bubble blister. It's actually got a smooth contour so that it's, it's right. aerodynamic, right? Yeah. Right. And, and the engineering has been done. So my understanding is if in the future, for some reason, um, I don't know, maybe major peer competition in say the Pacific, you needed more range out of your aircraft. This is something that could be retrofitted without R&D at this point. It's it's just another capability we chose not to buy at this point. Absolutely. And the nice thing is when you get to buying strategies and development strategies, a lot of times the U.S. will rely on other countries to actually pay for the R&D, the research and development mm-hmm. of something. And then they'll end up, uh, once the R&D is complete and the costs have been sunk, baked into the 
the the mature effort now will say, then the, the U.S. will wait like, okay, let's so for example, let's say Kuwait buys the the Block Three Super Hornet, and which they did, and let's say they want to they want the conformal fuel tanks. Well, then the government can say to Boeing, well, if they want it, they're going to pay for it. So Kuwait pays for the conformal fuel tanks, and they get developed all the way to a mature system. And then down the road later, if the U.S. Navy decides they want it, then they can basically buy it without having to pay for the research right. and development. Yeah. No, it's it almost it's not. And I know procurement guys will will kill me for saying this. It's almost an off the shelf option. Yeah, it is. It is. It totally. <laughs> yeah, it, to, it totally is. And we we use that strategy not only for aircraft development, so kind of what we call spiral development, where you keep mm-hmm. adding new incremental things to it. We have the uh, FMS or foreign military sales pick up yep. some of those R and D costs, but we also do it for weapons. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, it's just, and it's a strategy that it's not like we're holding a, a gun to their head or something. These, these, right. they do it of their own volition. We say, it, Hey, it's, it's smart business. It, exactly. Which, which yeah. for the government is not always I, the case. So, right. So right yeah. Refreshing change. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it is totally. Yeah. So nothing yeah. against our government, but let's, yeah. So. <laughs> um, okay. So back to the drag. So you had mentioned yeah. that there's, there's obviously less drag and that's true, except for in the transonic region. Okay. So uh, as you can imagine, we have the external fuel tanks originally hanging off the wings or these big kind of mm-hmm. bullet shaped things. There's a lot of drag there. And now you put them up on top, you open up the, the hard point for additional ordnance down below the wing, and then you have less drag hanging obviously below the wing, which, and they went through their computational fluid dynamics, like their CFD and these high-tech computer simulations and all that. And they optimized the shape for subsonic flight because mm. let's be honest, this is a, is a sweet looking fighter. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't rage around supersonic all the time. Right. Right. Or even transonic. Yeah. So, so they kind of found the sweet spot operationally and it was less than transonic and they optimized the drag for that. So okay. what happens then is as you try to get transonic and supersonic with this thing, there's something called wave drag. Mm-hmm. And once again, we can... We can talk about that in another episode, but basically shock waves are formed on the aircraft itself. And as you can imagine, those shock waves produce additional drag and they're called wave drag. So these CFTs create an additional amount of wave drag. It makes it harder for the the block three to slip through the number, if you will, to go from okay. trans to supersonic. So got it. So so basically the plane is moving faster than the air can get out of the way of the plane. Is that the the good uh history major? Well done. I'm gonna give, you get a, you get a gold star today. So well done. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So the the air starts to build up and it doesn't know where to go, and so it has to relieve this this excess energy, if you will, and it does right. it through it manifests in a shock wave. So it's a right a dramatic change in temperature and pressure very quickly. Yeah, and and it yeah. makes so, sense. You know, they so that extra the wave drag was actually CFTs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And um, just to give you an idea of, of wave drag, though, have you heard of the area rule? Yes, I have. In fact, okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Do you want to? What What do you know about it? And then I'll kind of yeah, li- li- yeah. I'll, I'll do the I'll do the again the layman history yeah. uh, history degree, which is basically the cross sectional area of your aircraft. If you can make it remain constant, you minimize the drag. And and the way I picture this best is going back to. What what I just think of is the super sexy designs of the late 1950s and early 1960s with a wasp wasted aircraft. And, you know, I'll 
one of my favorites, the B-58 Hustler. Not a big... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's got that wasp waist with those big delta wings. And so the way it got explained to me, to take it even down a notch from that, is if you made your airplane out of Play-Doh, right? Every section yeah. of the plane would have to be able to fit through the same little cylinder if you mashed it up. So the wings, where you get those wings coming out, you need to pinch in the waist of the airframe a little bit so the cross-sectional area is the same. Maybe a little off, but that's how it was explained to me, and it sort of made sense. No, I like it. I, I That's a new one for me, so so golf clap. Well done, sir. Yeah, that's <laughs> That's exactly right, though. You want a the transition from cross-sectional areas as you move from the nose to the tail has mm-hmm. to be very gradual. Yes. And so so I think uh, there's something called a Sears hack body. It's just these two engineers, Sears, and then hack. But anyway, their Sears hack body is, and this is, I'm going to boil it down to some fundamentals. We're not going to get into all mm-hmm. the compressibility, blah, blah, blah. But basically, a, the shape of a cigar, that is the ideal shape. To, okay. mi- to minimize wave drag, specifically in the transonic region. So imagine the cigar is uh, twisted at both ends, right? So it's kind of a, a, a flat football shape, if you will. Right. And there's a very gradual transition, but it's continuous transition from of cross-sectional area, excuse me, from the nose to the tail. So it goes small at the nose, gets a little bit bigger all the way to the middle, and then it slowly decreases back to a point right at the tail. Right. So that's ideally what you want. And uh, I thought your Hustler was a great example. Another good one would be, for me, it was always the T-38 and the F-5. Yeah. Do you remember mm-hmm. those birds? Yeah. So yeah. The, oh, absolutely. If the, if the listeners Google that, look at a plan form or like a God's eye view of the plane, you'll see wasting or kind of necking of the middle. And that's because mm-hmm. uh, if you take that Sears hack cigar body out of Play-Doh, to use your example, which is awesome, I think. And squeeze some of that material from the thick middle and make it into wings. And yeah. So that's that's why you have that wasting, if you. Will. Oh, I see. You took that and riffed on it, and I like that even more. Which is, you know, take the cigar shape, and that's all you get. Like exactly. That's all you get to make the airplane. Pinch your wings out of that. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. Nice. So, so, so now picture the the rhino, the super hornet here, and then they're going to throw extra mass on top of it in the middle section where it's really fat because it's got wings and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So so it's not anywhere close to a Sears hack body. Okay. So, so what happens is you just have a lot more wave drag in the transonic region. Right. Yeah. So, and I guess when I hear that, and I think, you know, from the air defense guy's perspective, we'll throw those CFTs on there, right? I want more gas. I want to run more intercepts with this thing. Uh, you know, the strike planters want to get more range out of it, but you know, there's operational considerations, but I think, as you said, the whole thing has sort of been optimized for just below that transonic because, you know, that's not where we fight generally right now, not least where the super Hornet's fighting. Yeah, totally. You are spot on. It's not kind of the heart of the envelope for operational purposes, but now, uh, thinking of range, you had mentioned, Hey, slap on some extra gas. And it turns out with the, the super Hornet flying about. 300 knots or max range, we'll call it, you're going to get about an extra 260 nautical miles out of it. So if, if wow. you have conformal fuel tanks, yeah. Right. so it, yeah. it makes a big deal. Yeah. I just, and I know, so again, coming from the surface guy, because, you know, if we're being honest, even as a proud surface warfare officer, yeah, you sure. know, aviation is the striking arm of our Navy at sea, right? Yes. Another 260 miles range to get weapons on the bad guy before he can shoot something at the carrier, which is I'm out there to defend against. And, you know, the fighters are out there to defend against and so on and so yeah. forth. 
Yeah. That is very significant. That is a, that is an immensely significant increase uh, in defense. Hundred percent. So it's it's the the kid with the biggest, the longest, really, the longest stick, right, is going to win the fight. Exactly. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I'm totally. All right. So scope. yeah, so we talked about fuel. Um, let's see. What I'll let you've got your list. So let's go down to what's next on your list. Yeah, sure thing. So this one's just a quickie, and that is the uh, radar cross section. So the specifically the frontal radar cross section. So we call that the wetted area, and I could we could talk aerodynamics later, but basically the front portions that are introduced to the air first as it's flying. So from a front aspect, the radar cross section has been significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. And I really, I'm going to say it's a quick quick section here because uh, at that point we're going to go classified, so I can't talk about right. it. <laughs> we, we can't say why, we can't yeah. say how. I will say this because a lot, of, a lot of reports you'll read, well, it's still not a stealth fighter. No, it's not. No, except, no, no. Except it sort of is because what is stealth, right? Stealth is a reduction of your radar cross section. And this is where, you know, I'll bring out the air defense side in me again. So reduced radar cross section means longer time to detect for the guy who's trying to shoot the SAM. Because mm-hmm. I was yeah. that guy, right? I'm, I'm that guy shooting yeah. the SAM on our behalf. Totally. Well, the longer it takes me to detect... And not just detect, but get a fire control solution on you and your inbound aircraft, the closer you are to me when I shoot. And that does a couple different things. I have fewer bites at the apple, if you will, mm-hmm. which means I'm probably going to shoot two missiles at you instead of one seeing what happens and shoot a second one, which means you're going to make me expend my missiles twice as quickly. The other piece is if you get close enough, you're going to launch your missile and every, you know, uh, fighter pilots want to go after the other fighter, Right. Yes. An air defense guy's like, if he's launched, I no longer care about him because my life is defending the carrier. I'm going to take out that arrow, not the archer. So if that reduced radar cross-section... All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast and this Authentic Media Snapshot. If you like what you heard, head over to Authentic Media on your favorite podcast platform for complete episodes and a whole lot more. We'll see you next time. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.